Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshe Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing, Yonit? You know, I'm, I was just thinking this week, <laughs> I had like about 30 seconds to think uh, between broadcasts. And, you know, when we thought about this podcast and, you know, Israel and the Jewish world, and we knew there'd never be a shortage of material, but what a year, what six months this has been. I mean, Israel becoming a vaccine empire, elections, war in Gaza, Netanyahu replaced. I mean, even by Israeli standards, that's enough to get your head spinning. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. There was a brief moment, I think it lasted about 40 seconds, where I thought, have we missed all the good stories? Is there going to be nothing <laughs> Is anything going on? Uh, and uh, instead, we have been served a news tsunami in these last six months. <laughs> But a really big one. I mean, it's funny, the, the the business of the change in government is is so huge. And, you know, I, I've been saying over and over on the podcast that I wouldn't believe it until I saw it. And then finally, I did see it. And uh, it was one of those sort of double take moments, actually. It, it was. We, we will talk about that moment. I just I have to tell you that the most popular hashtag this week in Israel is... Uh, 12 years ago, right? Everyone sort of uploading these pictures of what they looked like or what they were doing the last time there was a different prime minister here. I'll remind you, by the way, Barack Obama was the U.S. president. Gordon Brown was the British prime minister. And Twitter was two years old. Twitter was had... a little infant. And in <laughs> fact, I, and, my, and you know, I was running around two little infants. Um, I had two very young children in 2009. And one of them is now a university student. And the other one is sort of, you know, nearly as tall as I am. So Quite a lot has changed in 12 years. No, it's quite true. And uh, I know everyone was going on the hashtag was all about 2009, partly because I'm um, so ancient. I was thinking about the first time he became prime minister. And I was in Washington, D.C. in 1996, where, you know, this new brash leader for Israel was elected. And I remember people in the Clinton team at the time thinking, you know, he may not last that long. Um, he, you know, he's won this election, but we don't know if he'll be around that long. But Clinton's got another four years. There might be another leader coming along. Well, that was 25 years ago, you know, and we've all got a lot, uh, you know, grayer since then. By the way, if you're asking where I was 12 years ago, I'd say I was in the studio, same place, different hair, uh, anchoring the uh, broadcast of the new government when Netanyahu just stepped back into politics, 2009. It was 31st of March, 2009. Ruby Rivlin, then the Speaker of the Knesset, still pretty chummy with Netanyahu at the time, tried to rush the whole thing pretty quickly because he didn't want it, the government to be sworn in in uh, April Fool's Day. So it was a very uh. rushed kind of swearing-in ceremony. But that was our nostalgia part of the podcast. Now we can That's right. No, we'll, we, we will become forward-looking. But this is one of the great virtues of you being in the anchor's chair so long. You are a fixed point of stability in another <laughs> way. crazy world, you'll need. That whatever else is going on, you are in that chair. No, I think it's, um, as I said, it, it has been amazing. We should talk about what's what's happened since in the day, since it was a maybe and a will, that will it happen, won't it happen? And a few people were teasing us, playing with our feelings, thinking, will there be a last-minute breakaway? I know a couple of people were deliberately hinting that maybe they wouldn't be there for the vote. But in the end, it all did happen. It did. Look, uh, usually you have to say this is a very festive ceremony, right? Democracy sort of handing over you know, the transfer of power. And you usually have uh, something that's quite, you know, festive. This time it was less festive because 
uh, of a lot of heckling. And Naftali Bennett was trying to speak. It was his first speech. He was still prime minister designate because the swearing-in ceremony hadn't begun. But he was really, uh, he couldn't get a word in edgewise. He was bothered by uh, a lot of shouting from the Likud benches and from the religious Zionists. And I think what was sort of really nice at that moment, that extraordinary moment where his children were at the galley, up on the galley kind of signaling him with hearts to say, you know, everything will be okay. But it was just sort of the first indication of what he would go through. Yeah, I mean, you know, they also had that photo op, didn't they? This lineup um, for the new government. And it's funny, I had quite a strong reaction to it. It surprised me, the image of it. um, You know, look, uh, I've not done anything to hide my feelings about Naftali Bennett and his politics, and that would go for the politics of several of the parties in the coalition. Nevertheless, I found that um, the sight of a whole group of new faces, and yes, more diverse faces, including Arab members of the government and Ethiopian Israelis and others, you know, I think more women than before, that that was part of it. But mainly it was the idea that there, here was a new group of people. I felt there was something, you know, hesitant and sort of nervous in a good way about the picture, as if they were slightly awed by the responsibility they were taking on. But the reason I found it slightly moving was one of Netanyahu's points over the last few years, at least, has been to say, there's no alternative but me. Um, you know, I am uh, the king of Israel and no one else shall uh, approach. And that the, the, almost you felt as if the electorate was sort of believing that becoming a kind of codependent relationship where they clung to him because who else is big enough? And so the idea of a baton being passed, it's, it can be a very moving moment in following democratic elections when there is the handover. And I realized that I'd built up in some ways a kind of protective layer of, of you know, world-weary cynicism. I'll believe it when I see it, etc. But when I finally did see it, um, I think it was quite affecting. Yeah, well, if we're saying cynicism, I'll just say, you know, Israel has the most ideologically diverse government, the narrowest possible majority, and a fierce opposition from a dominant prime minister who doesn't, former prime minister who doesn't want to leave. What can go wrong? No, but seriously. I love the Freudian slip there. I love the Freudian <laughs> slip calling him prime minister. Notice, by the way, you're in good company. I mean, all, you know, Nikki Haley and others referring to him as if he's still the prime minister. Uh, I think it's it's going to be a habit of mine to get out of it. Don't and, you? Uh, you know, he had a meeting with, uh, the first thing he did Monday morning was to sort of ask all of the opposition, now opposition members to come and meet him. And they kept calling him prime minister, a slip of the tongue or or deliberate slip of the tongue. And then he said, it's okay, I'm not going to correct you. And then he added on camera, you can call me his majesty. He said the quiet thing out loud. This is Netanyahu. But yes, it's going to take a while to get used to it. There was just a regular, I don't know if it's a regular news item, but not 100% correlated to politics. It was about his trial. And I said, the trial of pause leader of opposition, Benjamin Netanyahu, right? You have that moment when you sort of have to get get used to that. By the way, I'm not sure Netanyahu himself has gotten used to it. I think it's also what he's trying to do in his tactic. This is what he said in the Knesset uh, in his last speech as prime minister. Let's listen. We'll be back soon. We'll be back. He was, uh, he was signaling with the English, Jonathan. Channeling his inner Schwarzenegger, inner MacArthur, whatever you think he was doing there. You know, by the way, him going into English always really interests me um, because it's quite deliberate when politicians do it. And, you know, I think he it has crossed his mind that he wants an afterlife not only to come back to the prime minister's office, which I think we agree he has still got in his sights, but there's a lucrative career to, to be had for Netanyahu going back to the life he had before, which was a big TV star 
on uh, in America. And it won't just be TV, it'll be lectures. And, and he wants to make sure that he is persona grata rather than persona non grata. First of all, I think he goes to English a lot. We talked about this. His conversations as prime minister in the prime minister's office were usually in English. Uh, you asked right. me about this once and I thought about it a little bit. And I think that, you know, he has this secret uh, maybe dream to, to one day if he could have become the uh, at least the nominee for uh, president from the Republican Party. Of course, he can't because he wasn't born in the United States. But, you know, he feels like if you're in the corridors of the prime minister's office in Jerusalem, you squint your eyes a little bit, you can imagine and speak in English, you can kind of imagine you were in Pennsylvania Avenue. I think that's also part of it. But Netanyahu is not going anywhere, Jonathan. I mean, he's making it very clear he is sticking to being right now, the head of the opposition. And he's doing everything in his power to kind of signal to Israelis that Naftali Bennett is really, first of all, not a legitimate prime minister, and that it's just a mistake. And he'll be back very quickly. I and mean, look at the fact that, for instance, he didn't go for a, a handing over ceremony, which is really the tradition in this country. This is a very Trumpian uh, thing for him to do, right? He did not net let Naftali Bennett have his photo op in the prime minister's office and say, this is a uh, transfer of power. I'm handing it to you. It has always been the case here in Israel, even with Rabin handing it over to Menachem Begin, not liking the situation, and Shimon Peres handing it over to a very young Benjamin Netanyahu in 96, and by the way, Netanyahu himself handing it over to Ehud Barak in 99. This time, he uh, opted out of it, uh, and I think that's part of him trying to say, I'm still here, by the way, he still lives in the prime minister's residence uh, at this point, even receiving guests. That is all part of showing, you know, I'm still, I'm still around, and I'm quote unquote, the real, uh, the real prime minister. But I have to go back to one moment, Jonathan, that yeah. I take from the swearing in ceremony that I think kind of flew under the radar because everyone was focusing on the will he or will he not shake hands with Bennett, which he did quite reluctantly, but did. But, you know, there's this, the visual of it is quite impressive in Israeli politics. What happens is the government, swore, the, the ministers are swearing in and then the sort of opposition walks from the back benches to the government table. And then the government, the ministers of the old government have to walk back. So Netanyahu had to get up from the prime minister's chair and walk to the chair of the, uh, the bench of the head of opposition. Now, who was sitting there? Yair Lapid. And Lapid really took his time, right? He was like collecting his papers as slowly as possible, taking a book, just doing it as slowly as possible to enjoy the moment that Netanyahu is sitting down in the head of opposition chair and he is moving up to the benches of, of the government. Yeah, I love that kind of theatre. And look, they are now the new government. And so even though it's very tempting to talk about the old guy and about the ceremony of handover, we have to at least think about the decisions they're taking. And they had a very early one, which was this decision whether or not to grant permission for a demonstration, a march, the March of the Flags by assorted uh, Jewish nationalists through Jerusalem. You know, there, I was sitting there thinking, this is, uh, they need this like a hole in the head, Lapid and Bennett, because we know it was trouble in Jerusalem that kicked off uh, the 11 day conflict in May. And here, once again, they're going to have to decide if they say no, then immediately they're an unpatriotic and uh, anti, uh, anti nationalist government. And if they say yes, then do they risk 
you know, another round of violence with Hamas. And I'm sure that was not an easy decision. Or anyway, maybe it was an easy decision, but it wasn't a wanted decision for the new government. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a booby trap left by the Netanyahu government, right? Because he postponed this. They made the decision to go for this march, but he postponed it for the week after, the couple of days after the uh, new government will swear in. Look, you said, and you're correct, there's very delicate maneuvering going on here. Because on the one hand, uh, again, you don't want to give ammunition to the claim that this is a left-wing government. On the other hand, there's another thing going on here, and this is you have to assert your authority. Also, uh, when Hamas is threatening, you know, if you do this march, we're going to shoot fire rockets to Jerusalem. You can't say, okay, then we're not going to do it. So it's a delicate first test, and it went by quietly and it ended and 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 now here we are by the way uh bennett said that he will have a security cabinet meeting every sunday something that did not exist in the netanyahu years and one of his uh criticisms against netanyahu was to say you're never talking to anyone in your security cabinet you're only making the decisions uh by yourself and it's an, and, and bennett is trying to show that he is completely different you know, again, we have to remember this is a very bizarre situation in which, in a way, you don't have a prime minister who chose his coalition, but rather a coalition who chose the prime minister. So that and, is and also by the way, work. I liked that about that photograph. I know I'm banging on about the picture, but I liked the fact that almost physically it is the incredibly it's the incredible shrinking prime minister, you know, this that we're seeing because Bibi physically loomed over everyone else in the mm -hmm. picture. Yeah. And here Bennett was, you know, primus inter pares. He was one among equals yep. in that picture. The funny thing for me was when they had their first government meeting, basically the first thing that uh, Bennett was saying, see, I keep doing that. I said Netanyahu. Bennett was saying was, God, Guys, we're going to have a meeting every Sunday and you should be on time, which was it's like, you know, maybe that's the moment where you want to say something emotional, quote a verse or two. No, no. He was the high tech guy, the startup guy saying, guys, we're going to start on time. Yeah. Thanks. And you know what, though? I don't mind that because, you know, one of the things that was lost, whether in a way, whether you were a hawk or dove, one of the things that was lost over recent years, and I think accounts for why the right wing parties joined this coalition, the Gidon Sars and the... Uh, 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 Naftali Bennett's and others, uh, is this notion that those standards, the basic wheels of government, had stopped turning. Mm -hmm. And it had become, in a way, an autocracy, where it was the whim of one person deciding every, every post, every job, every decision, every appointment. And in a small way, I think, you know, I, I can tolerate the turn up on time thing, because it's a gesture towards what is a little bit of connective tissue for this uh, administration, which is good governance. Yes. Look, I'm giving them their first, free, you know, they get a free pass for week one uh, from commentators well, like very us. Very generous of you. Very You'd generous be generous you, the first week. I always remember the cartoon that appeared in the Washington Post in November 1972 after uh, Richard Nixon was elected. I remember that cartoon too. Yeah, yeah, you weren't even born then. Um, the, there's a picture of him. I don't remember it. I've seen it. Come on. And he is sitting there, Nixon is sitting there in the barber's chair with clean shaven. And the point of it was that the Washington Post cartoonist always did Nixon with five o'clock shadow, famously, because he always did have five o'clock shadow. But his point was, you you have a change of government, you're in, in Nixon's case, re-election, it's a new mandate. Even the cartoonist gives you a clean start, a fresh start. And so <laughs> for like this that. week, that was the sort of mood I was in a bit, where I'm even prepared to sort of indulge a little bit this prime minister whose values and ideals on, on all the questions that I think matter, I'm opposed to. But they believe in good governments. They're going to again in good governance for now, and therefore for now we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, but we are going to talk a little bit more about 
the former prime minister. I think this is a good opportunity to talk about his legacy, uh, as, yeah. as we could call this episode the long goodbye or the longest goodbye. And, and of course, Netanyahu is, is an extremely polarizing figure inside Israel and out. We tend to think you either love him or hate him, and ergo you either agree with everything he does or oppose every move he makes. And obviously, people are complex and leaders are, are, are complex. And the leader's legacy, and of course, the one someone with the longevity like Benjamin Netanyahu, um, is never either black or white. So I think we should talk about, you know, what he has left behind to the extent that he's, you know, he could be coming back, but just what has he left behind in these 12 years, two months and 13 days of his second tenure as prime minister. Um, That's a good idea. I think you let's draw up um, the ledger for, for, you know, for the credit (laughs) column and the debit column. And, uh, you know, I think that he's complicated and he was there a long time. So there's stuff to go in both columns. What would you put first of all in the credit column? Well, first, yeah, I want to start with the credit column so I can upset you and maybe some unholy listeners for Shabbat and talk about the good uh, before. Um, and, And look, I think most Israelis voted for Netanyahu because of stability and security. Remember that famous uh, catchphrase by James Carville when he was trying to explain why uh, uh, Bill Clinton was elected? He said, it's the economy, stupid. In Israel, it's always the security. It's very simple data, right? Every time I would I would try to explain to especially American friends, they would ask, why are Israelis voting for Netanyahu? And I said, look, it's just very simple. Look at how many Israelis died in terror attacks between 2000 and 2010, this of course includes the Second Intifada, I think the biggest trauma for Israelis since the Yom Kippur War, 1,159 Israelis. Now look at how many Israelis died in terror attacks in the decade uh, under Netanyahu's rule between 2010 and 2020, and the answer is 161. So that explains a lot uh, about why Netanyahu could grow this so uh, so much uh, support in Israel. You can explain this all kinds of ways. He was very, you know, risk shy. He didn't go to uh, wars that he didn't uh, want to. There was also, of course, let's say, um, strong uh, apparatus here in Israel and also the Palestinian Authority against terror. But, but you know, this is to Netanyahu's credit in Israel by his supporters. That Look, is it definitely goes. It definitely goes in that column. I agree with you, but that is at a price because the big, to my mind, the number one essential existential question for Israel, resolving its conflict with the Palestinians. He did nothing to advance that. But yeah, look, for Israelis' day-to-day life, it meant that things sure. were quiet. And, and, and he could freeze that because he could. there are two things that worked in his favor. One is that the, the minute the Middle East exploded in sectarian violence and ISIS, et cetera, and, and what happened in Syria, he could say, look, this isn't happening. The Middle East isn't a mess because I didn't make peace with the Palestinians. The Middle East is a mess because it's a mess, and I'm not going to take any risks. Now, what helped him again was the Abraham Accords, when for so many years the people who were in the peace business said, you can't make peace with any Arab state because you have not moved forward with made any progress with the Palestinians. And suddenly Netanyahu could say, wait a minute, I just signed these accords, another plus on his column, Um because and I didn't make any progress with the Palestinians, so this all played in his uh, in his favor. I think I, I was just going to say something about Abraham Accords. Definitely, uh, you know, it's always going to be there. It's going to be in the in the third or fourth paragraph of the Netanyahu obituary as one of the great achievements, no doubt about it. Again, though. Credit to him because he did upend the previous logic, which always said, first you deal with the Palestinians and then you make, you normalize with the rest of the Arab world. And everyone believed that. And he turned it upside down and said, no, I can do it differently. But again, the conflict in May showed you that it only takes you so far. You can make peace Mm -hmm. with these faraway countries 
of whom Israelis know little, but you ca- it still doesn't solve the problem of the people whose land you share. And, you know, it's great to tick the box and say we've now got relations with Sudan or whatever. But in terms of the day-to-day life, again, Abraham Accords, yes, a plus, but it conceals a very big mind. And, and of course, inside Israel, it showed the Netanyahu that doesn't share anything, doesn't tell anyone. He hid this from his security defense minister, Benny Gantz. He hid it from the uh, uh, foreign minister, uh, and he hid the fact that he agreed uh, that Americans will sell the F-35 uh, planes to the UAE. So uh, again, this is not, uh, this is the Netanyahu legacy. It's always complicated. Of course, in the plus column, we have to put the vaccine operation. This is Netanyahu at his very best. Getting there, calling the CEO of Pfizer 30 times and getting Israel the vaccines. He paid more for them. I mean, the Israeli taxpayer paid more for them. And he had the infrastructure that was already set uh, up by previous uh, governments. But still, he got the vaccines. But this will also help us turn the page to the uh, cons column, unless, uh, Jonathan, you'd like to say something more in the pro column for Netanyahu? Uh, well, obviously, I want to gush <laughs> for hours about about Bibi. I, I mean, on the vaccine, so again, you know, and I don't mean to be sort of that guy, but... But you are that success, guy. Each success of Bibi does come with this shade. You know, every silver lining is attached to a cloud. So yes, the vaccine was a great achievement, but and I think the Israeli electorate spoke on this, it did not make up for or offset the mishandling of the pandemic in so many other ways. The fact that, you know, yes, he got the amazing rollout, but before then, there was a time when it was rampant in Israel, partly through mishandling the coronavirus. So yes, he always, I think this is the story of Bibi, he sort of gives with one hand, but takes with the other. There are these gains, Abraham Accords, but downside doesn't do anything with the Palestinians. And I say, I think the coronavirus story was a tale of two pandemics in a way. He dealt with one brilliantly, I mean, uh, with the vaccine, but didn't uh, handle the whole process that well. But let's get more what, to, into my comfort zone and get into yes, our debit before column. We get, but before I get into the cons column, which I will add to that, you're completely, I completely agree with you. And that is exactly the part where what has been exposed here is, again, the Netanyahu who's very, who you know, has these achievements, he gets the vaccines, but the complete mismanagement of the coronavirus uh, uh, in the year that, ha- that, that we had here before the vaccines, the way that he allowed for the ultra-Orthodox community to completely, parts of it at least, completely violate restrictions, thus spreading coronavirus throughout Israel. And, and as Israelis saw it, just because he was so dependent on them politically, I think was a major part of his downfall. And I think when we look at it today, we can definitely say that that Benjamin Netanyahu was the final victim of coronavirus in Israel, or at least his political career was the final victim of of coronavirus here in this country. I'm glad you mentioned the the point about the ultra-Orthodox, because that gets us to one of my, it's the second of my two cons that I was going to offer. Only two cons? Uh, Well, the two, you know, we're we're on a limited time format here, Yoni. But, you know, the the, the two cons I was going to mention were, first of all, that one, that he did allow the Haredim to live. I know the word that's used in Israel as often as autonomy. I prefer uh, enclave. Uh, even though you know it's a sizable chunk of the population, but to live as a kind of separate jurisdiction outside the mainstream of national life. And that is unhealthy, I think, for Israel's long-term future. He, the deal, the Faustian bargain, it seems to me, that he struck with the ultra-Orthodox parties was, you give me your 
seats and mandates so that I get to form a coalition. And in return, I will write you a very big check for your institutions, particularly your religious academies, yeshivot. And essentially, I will turn a blind eye and you can do whatever you like in your own patch. And I think, you know, just a matter of weeks ago, we talked on here about the Mount Moron disaster. And in a way, it seemed like that terrible disaster taking 45 lives partly came out of the fact that he granted a blanket exemption to Haredim on observance of all the inst- all the rules and regulations that bind other Israelis. It was massively dramatic during coronavirus for all the reasons you said, mass gatherings when everyone else is having to lock down or wear masks. But I think he did it with, not only with the ultra-Orthodox, but also with uh, Arab Israelis. And that was my second big negative on him, which is that he did pit one group of citizens against another group, and he pitted the Jewish majority against the Arab minority. And 2015 was when he really did it with that, um, you know, we said Arabs are going to the polls in droves, mm-hmm. as if to say it's okay that one group of citizens should go out to vote simply because another group of citizens are casting their democratic ballot. I didn't like that one bit. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd add to that. And I think this is it's a distinction that's important to make. I think it's a different Netanyahu from about 2009 and t- up until 2015. And then you see a different uh, leader. I think that moment that you mentioned, the 2015 elections, when he said Arabs are uh, coming uh, to the polls in droves, um, I think that ever since his indictment uh, and his corruption cases, Netanyahu has been waging a full-on war on the legal system in this country. You know, we know what Netanyahu planned to do if he got into, if he actually managed to form a coalition, because this is what his loyalists set out and this is what they said clearly, to enact a law that will give him personal immunity for prosecution, curtail the uh, jurisdiction of the High Court of Justice, and prevent any interference in that law. These were his plans. This is uh, something that I think that many of his opponents will point out and again, he is a, a very, very talented man, very intelligent, knowledgeable, has his worldview. But I think at a certain point, uh, especially when his corruption cases kind of hit him, he did everything in his power to survive politically. Now, what he would tell you, by the way, if he was listening to this conversation, we invite him, of course, to listen to our podcast. What he will tell you is what he deeply believes, honestly, right, is that he is the only one who is able to save Israel. And this is his deep conviction. So that corresponds with the fact that he has his own sort of loyalists and this, what we call in Israel, bibizim, right? Almost this worship of Netanyahu. And I think, you know, this reminds me of, of um, Bill Goldman was once asked, the legendary screenwriter, the late legendary screenwriter, was once asked about a major Hollywood star. Uh, what is he like? And he said, he's, what is he like? He's like anyone who no one has said no to him for 30 years. So that is, uh, I think, what we can say about the inside view of Netanyahu. Would we want to say something about the outside view? Yeah, no, I, I'm very, I think we should. Uh, that Partly it relates to what you just mentioned, which is this idea of denigrating the institutions, saying anybody who attacks me is attacking the country, constantly pitting himself against a sort of hated liberal elite establishment that ran the universities, the legal system, the media. That became a template outside Israel. I mean, I think it was already there. It's not like he invented it, but echoes of, of Bibi-ism work resonated around the world. I think of Viktor Orban in Hungary, and I do think of Donald Trump in America. They were, if they were consciously taking pages out of the uh, Bibi Netanyahu playbook, I'm not so sure. Maybe they were already in that game already. But um, somehow, uh, what Bibi was doing inside Israel did become uh, a framework that was, I think, emulated uh, in places around the world. Otherwise, I think outside is fascinating because, again, as as we've been saying about him, it is it is a double 
faced story, there are people who will really miss Netanyahu, pro-Israel people who loved how fluent and eloquent he was in the English language at explaining his own country as he saw it. And for a certain kind of American right-winger, he was a prince across the water. You know, he was the leader they didn't have but wanted. And you can hear in this speech, for example, uh, to Congress in 2015, itself a notorious occasion because it was so partisan. But he makes a case against the Iran nuclear deal that in a way was more eloquent and more concise and more robust than any opponent of then-President Barack Obama had managed to uh, formulate up until that point. We can hear a bit of it now. We've been told that no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, this is a bad deal. It's a very bad deal. We're better off without it. You called it an infamous speech. I mean, I think it kind of depends on what side of the table you're sitting at, because obviously his supporters and John Boehner, who was then Speaker of the House, who organized, orchestrated the whole thing, right? The Israeli prime minister talking against the plan of an American president in front of a Republican Congress. Um, that is obviously, I think there are many people in Israel who thought, oh, he's finally standing up for us and someone is standing up for us and doing it so eloquently. And I think this is the moment when many of the United States of the American jury was very liberal leaning, kind of took a step back from Netanyahu. Of course, this was exacerbated by Donald Trump and their relationship, which, you know, the fact that they were so perfectly aligned I think made made many American Jews quite uh, quite uncomfortable. To, to I think so too, and I think in terms of legacy, if we are assessing Netanyahu's legacy, this may be something that really does outlive him because he has managed to turn what was previously a bipartisan issue of support for Israel into a partisan issue, and I think we saw the fruits of that again in May during those eleven mm-hmm. days of violence because Democrats were not ready to line up. Uh, you know, loyally behind the traditional democratic position of support for Israel. Instead, it was a partisan thing, or he had made it that way. And obviously, people, Joe Biden and others, are trying to put that back together again. But Netanyahu did that. Look, this may surprise you a little bit. I think one group who may miss Netanyahu, who don't yet realize it, will be liberal supporters of Israel, who fell and found it hard often to defend Israel, but were able to hide behind, almost make a human shield of Benjamin Netanyahu, because something awful would happen in Israel. And they could turn to their liberal friends and go on liberal Twitter and say, that's Netanyahu, that's not Israel. I'm against what Netanyahu is doing, not what Israel is doing. And that fig leaf will now be removed. If the government of Bennett Lapid do something that's unpalatable, then those defenders of Israel are going to have to say either, well, maybe this is Israel, or, okay, now I'm not only against Netanyahu, but I'm also against Netanyahu's successors. So Netanyahu proved a very valuable lightning rod, a kind of foil for liberal pro-Israel people around the world, and they may not realise how much they miss him until he's gone. So now they need to find a new excuse is what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's just a, it's a less comfortable manoeuvre to criticize for many people to criticize Israel than it is to criticize Israel's long-standing prime minister. And now they're going to have to make that move, or as I say, they just have to switch their negative allegiance and start criticizing the new guys as well. So I think we can uh, soon move on to Chutzpah Mensch. I just have to tell you that there's one thing I'm still I have this image in my head this whole week because I don't know if you uh, visited the prime minister's office when Netanyahu was in power, Jonathan. Yes, I did. I but interviewed Netanyahu in that office. When When was this? What year? Tell me. I, it was in 2016, and I was making a radio program about Entebbe. 
And I was there and, and it was very strictly delineated. We were to have a conversation about his brother, the late Yoni Netanyahu, who of course was slain in the uh, operation in Entebbe. And it was a very, I must say, a very intense and powerful encounter with Prime Minister Netanyahu. The whole challenge for me as an interviewer was to get him not to be the Prime Minister, but to be the brother. And that was what we were talking about. And and it's a, it was, to me, it was one of the most, you know, still one of the most uh, memorable conversations of my journalistic life, actually. That's very interesting. Did you get, I was wondering if you got the tour of the, did you see the ring? Did you get the explanation about the ring, which every, there was not a single, a single person who walks through that, walked to the, the office that did not see, you know, that uh, ring unearthed in Jerusalem about 2000, dated back 2,700 years. And it has an inscription that is similar to Netanyahu's own family name. You always get that lecture and then kind of proof of the historic bond between the Jews and their land. And you kind of think, is it also proof of the historic bond between Benjamin and Yahoo and this office? So I'm wondering, you know, he, what he happened? He did not. No, I didn't get that? I didn't, you didn't get it? You should I, I didn't get that. No, he made an exception for me. <laughs> I now feel bad. But, um, I, I, you know, but I did see him outside his office a few times too on visits to London. And I've, you know, I never got a chance to uh, get the full ring treatment. So, you know, maybe when he makes his comeback, I'll, I'll book in. <laughs> I'll it. book in to get that. Do we need to appoint uh, and hand out mention chutzpah? We always awards? do. Yes. We do, don't we? Well, look, shall I get the ball rolling with chutzpah? Mm-hmm. I um found, well I do I was partly going to just for the sheer political sort of barefacedness of it I was going to mention Andrew Yang who's a candidate to be mayor of New York City who has vowed to be a twenty four hour twenty four seven mayor constantly present in the city he said he will only leave New York City uh, to go to three places Albany the state capital Washington D.C. of course the American capital and Israel. And the sheer brazenness of pitching for uh, for for pro-Israel and Jewish votes in New York, it just uh, uh, that tickled me. So I think he deserves that. But my <laughs> but my main nominee really would be uh, also a New York one, actually, which is the New York Deli. It's uh, a delicatessen in New York that was selling kosher ham. I kid you not. Uh, isn't that fantastic? And I've seen the picture. It, it really is a ham. It's a, it's unmistakably a ham, and it's it does like have ham. the. It's it's not fake ham. Okay. It's not so vegan ham. Do they know ham. what kosher means? They keep saying that word. Maybe they don't. Think it, it so it's it's a, it's a fantastic thing. It's that there was uh, a, a a you know Shomer Kashrut customer was in the deli and he saw it there, and there's the stamp of the Orthodox Union uh, on it. He um, brought this to the attention of both the Orthodox Union and the manufacturers, and it turns out to have been a system error. But the Heksha on the ham, who gets the chutzpah award, either the Union for giving the Heksha or almost the ham itself for for bearing a kosher stamp. So that's my chutzpah award. I don't think I can beat that, but I'll try. Okay, I'll really try. Uh, Ex-Minister of Regional Cooperation in Israel, Mr. Ophir Akunis from the Likud. So he made headlines this week by declaring that his ministry was, uh, or is, still still exists, unnecessary and should have been closed down long ago. Now, he realized this epiphany, <laughs> he got this epiphany, <laughs> on the morning that he was supposed to transfer the portfolio from himself to the new uh, Minister of uh, Regional Cooperation, Mr. Isawi Fredge from Meritz. Question is, sir, when did you actually notice it was unnecessary? Maybe because he was about to be evicted. I think that's textbook chutzpah, to be honest. I, it really is. No, I agree with you. I think that wins because it, it does meet our 
uh, Leo Rosten, great Yiddishist definition of chutzpah, which, to remind listeners, is the man who's killed both his parents and asks the judge for leniency on the grounds that he is an orphan. Uh, it, it has that complete brass net chutzpah to it. No, I think it, that's a worthy winner. Um, for Mensch, I was going to suggest, uh, because it's a first, it's a historic first, uh, Amanda Beckenstein Mbuvi, who is a... Uh, Hebrew teacher and scholar, and she is to be the next vice president of academic affairs at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College just outside Philadelphia, and therefore is the first Jew of color to lead a major rabbinical school. And that seems to me a landmark worthy of recognition. Very nice. You got good nominees this week. You've been working, doing your homework. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it got? to uh, Christiane Amanpour, Chief International uh, Anchor for CNN, who shared uh, with viewers this week that she had cancer, ovarian cancer. She said she uh, has had surgery and is going uh, chemotherapy. Just, I mean, the sheer bravery of actually saying this on air and doing it to talk about and, and, and emphasize the importance of early diagnosis, um, but also just add that this was her first show coming back on Monday. She spent a minute on this and just moved on to anchoring her, her show. She said, that's uh, my news and let's get on to the news. I, that is just, I mean, just being so brave and such a professional, um, I think that is my Mensch nominee for this week. You know what, since we're talking about bravery, I agree with you completely. Since we're talking about bravery and professionalism of our colleagues, I want to mention just briefly uh, a former colleague of mine, now BBC, a political editor on BBC's Newsnight, Nicholas Watt, who also showed bravery and courage. He was basically chased by a gang of anti-lockdown activists in the streets of Westminster, harassed and really threatened and just um, legged it, and uh, uh, but but kept calm under fire, didn't take the bait, didn't get into a fight, uh, police all around who did nothing, but he um, did the right thing and withdrew from the situation. I sent him a message afterwards and he mentioned to me that he's training as a 1,500-metre runner <laughs> many, many years ago in his youth, helped him a bit. Wow. But he, that should never happen to a journalist doing his yeah. job uh, and he reacted like a mensch. So I think a couple of journalists for our Mensch Award this week. Um, a reminder, if you are one of our regulars and you have not yet subscribed, what on earth are you <laughs> waiting for? Please do that. Uh, subscribe, recommend to your friends, give us a review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And we do have people to thank and uh, and to mention. Always do. Our executive producer, Lior Friedman, Rome Attic, head of podcasts, Omer Primat and Irad Eshel for original music. Jonathan, whatever are we going to talk about next week? I hope there's some news. I really do. Yeah, I think somehow they won't disappoint us, the gods of news. <laughs> See you on it. Have a good week.